Welcome to another in-depth exploration of the book of Jeremiah, written by Imre Tokic, Ph.D., LLD, edited for audio and produced by the Ambassador Group. Exploration 11. The Covenant. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the northern kingdom, and with the house of Judah, the southern kingdom. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, Amplified Bible. Here are two references of covenants mentioned in the New Testament. Romans chapter 9, the final words of verse 3 and verse 4 say, My brothers, my natural kinsmen, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, the glory, Shekinah, the special covenants with Abraham, Moses, and David, the giving of the law, the system of temple worship, and the original promises. And Galatians chapter 4, verse 24. Now these facts are about to be used by me as an allegory, that is, I will illustrate by using them, for these women can represent two covenants. One covenant originated from Mount Sinai, where the law was given, that bears children, destined for slavery. She is Hagar. Although the Bible speaks of covenants in the plural, there is only one basic covenant, the covenant of grace, in which God bestows salvation upon fallen beings who claim it by faith. The idea of plural covenants arises from the various ways God has restated the essential covenant promise in order to meet the needs of his people in different times and settings. There are four covenants mentioned in Scripture. We will hear the Scripture references read from the Amplified Bible. The Adamic Covenant in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, tells us the covenant that God made with Adam. God is referring to Satan, represented by the serpent. And I will put enmity, open hostility, between you and the woman, and between your seed, offspring, and her seed. He shall fatally bruise your head, and you shall only bruise his heel. There is a footnote for this verse which says, Many consider this verse, the Proto-Evangelium, the first announcement of the gospel. This is the first prophecy about the Messiah, Christ, who through his death on the cross and resurrection would ultimately defeat Satan, the power behind the serpent, with a death blow. The Abrahamic covenant is mentioned in both the Old and New Testaments. In the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now in Haran, the Lord had said to Abram, Go away from your country, and from your relatives, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation 
and I will bless you abundantly and make your name great, exalted, distinguished, and you shall be a blessing, a source of great good to others. And I will bless, do good for, benefit those who bless you. And I will curse, that is, subject to my wrath and judgment, the one who curses, despises, dishonors, has contempt for you. And in you, all the families, nations of the earth will be blessed. In the New Testament, Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. Just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, as conformity to God's will and purpose, so it is with you also. So understand that it is the people who live by faith, with confidence in the power and goodness of God, who are the true sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, proclaimed the good news of the Savior to Abraham in advance, with the promise saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are people of faith, whether Jew or Gentile, are blessed and favored by God, and declared free of the guilt of sin and its penalty and placed in right standing with him, along with Abraham the believer. The Davidic covenant is mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 24 through 27. My servant David will be king over them, and they all will have one shepherd. They will also walk in my ordinances and keep my statues and observe them. They will live in the land where your fathers lived, the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, and they will live there, they and their children and their children's children forever, and my servant David will be their leader forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them and will put my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And the new covenant is explained in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 33. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the northern kingdom, and with the house of Judah, the southern kingdom. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, 
and they will be my people. Whether it's the Adamic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Sinaitic covenant, the Davidic covenant, or the new covenant, the idea is the same. The salvation God provides is a gift, unmerited and undeserved. And the human response to that gift, in a sense, humanity's holding up its side of the deal, is faithfulness and obedience. The first mention of the new covenant is in Jeremiah. In the context of Israel's return from exile and the blessings that God would grant them, even amid calamity and trouble, the Lord extends to his wayward people the offer of hope and restoration. Covenant with all humanity. We look at how bad the world is today. We see all the evil in it, and yet God still bears with us. We can only imagine just how bad things must have been in order for the Lord to destroy the whole world with a flood. God had given men his commandments as a rule of life. But his law was transgressed, and every conceivable sin was the result. The wickedness of men was open and daring. Justice was trampled in the dust, and the cries of the oppressed reached unto heaven. You can read the context of that assessment by Ellen G. White in her book, Patriarchs and Prophets, on page 91. Let's listen to Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. What covenant was made between God and humanity? And how does it reflect God's grace toward the creation? And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear and the terror of you shall be instinctive in every animal of the land and in every bird of the air, and together with everything that moves on the ground and with all the fish of the sea, they are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I give you everything as I gave you the green plants and vegetables. But you shall not eat meat along with its life, that is, its blood. For your lifeblood I will most certainly require an accounting. From every animal that kills a person, I will require it. And from man, from every man's brother, that is, anyone who murders, I will require the life of man. 
Whoever sheds man's blood unlawfully by man, judicial government, shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I am establishing my covenant, binding agreement, solemn promise with you, with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and the wild animals of the earth along with you, of everything that comes out of the ark, every living creature of the earth. I will establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the water of a flood, nor shall there ever again be a flood to destroy and ruin the earth. And God said, This is the token, visible symbol, memorial of the solemn covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I set my rainbow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring clouds over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the clouds, and I will compassionately remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all earth. And never again will the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the rainbow is in the clouds and I look at it, I will solemnly remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This rainbow is the sign of the covenant, solemn pledge, binding agreement, which I have established between me and all living things on the earth. The covenant God expressed to Noah was the most universal among the biblical covenants. Genesis chapter 9 verse 12 tells us it was with all humanity and it included the animals and nature too. Here is what Genesis chapter 9 verse 12 says in the New Living Translation. Then God said, I'm giving you a sign of my covenant with you and with all living creatures for all generations to come. Also, this was a one-sided arrangement. The Lord didn't impose any requirements or stipulations upon those with whom he was establishing the covenant. He simply was not going to destroy the earth with water again, period. <laughs> Unlike other covenants, Nothing was conditional about it. God then sealed his covenant with a visible sign 
that of a rainbow, which symbolizes the covenant promise that the earth will never be destroyed by a flood again. So, any time we see a rainbow, the mere fact that we are here to see it is in its own way a vindication of this ancient covenant promise. After all, if we had been wiped out in a universal flood, we wouldn't be here to see the rainbow. Surrounded by the constant sin and evil here on earth, at times we are blessed with the beauty of the rainbow, a sign of God's grace toward the whole world. We can look up at it and find hope, not only from just how beautiful it is in and of itself, but also because we know that it's a message from God, a message of His love toward our wretched planet. Think about the grandeur and beauty of a rainbow especially in light of what the Bible tells us about the rainbow. In what ways can it bring us closer in our relationship with God? Toward transcendence? Toward something greater than what this mere earth itself offers? Covenant with Abraham. Let's listen to three sets of verses. What do these texts tell us about what the Lord intended to do through the covenant he made with Abraham? Set number one, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now in Haran, the Lord had said to Abram, Go away from your country, and from your relatives, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you abundantly, and make your name great, exalted, and distinguished. And you shall be a blessing, a source of great good to others, and I will bless do good for and benefit those who bless you. And I will curse, that is, subject to my wrath and judgment, the one who curses, despises, dishonors, has contempt for you. And in you, all the families and nations of the earth will be blessed. Set number 2, Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward for obedience shall be very great. Abram said, Lord, God, what reward will you give me? since I am leaving this world childless, 
And who will be the owner and heir of my house? Is this servant Eliezer from Damascus? And Abram continued, Since you have given no child to me, one, a servant born in my house, is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man, Eliezer, will not be your heir, but he who shall come from your own body shall be your heir. And the Lord brought Abram outside his tent into the night and said, Look, look now toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, So numerous shall your descendants be. And set number three, Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 14. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord said, I am God Almighty. Walk habitually before me with integrity, knowing that you are always in my presence, and be blameless and complete in obedience to me. I will establish my covenant, everlasting promise between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly through your descendants. Then Abram fell on his face in worship, and God spoke with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. And as a result, you shall be the father of many nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, exalted father, but your name shall be Abraham, father of a multitude. For I will make you the father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, moving from place to place, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession of property, and I will be their God. Further, God said to Abraham, As for you, your part of the agreement, you shall keep and faithfully obey the terms of my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is the sign of my covenant, which you shall keep and faithfully obey between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be the sign, the symbol, memorial of the covenant between me and you. Every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations, including a servant, whether born in the house or one who was purchased with your money 
from any foreigner who is not of the descendants. A servant who is born in your house or one who is purchased with your money must be circumcised. And the sign of my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. The Abrahamic covenant of grace is fundamental to the entire course of salvation history. That's why Paul used it to help explain the plan of salvation as it was fulfilled in Jesus himself. How does Paul connect the covenant made with Abraham to Jesus and to salvation by faith alone? Let's find out by listening to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9, and skipping to verses 15 through 18. Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, as conformity to God's will and purpose, so it is with you also. So understand that it's the people who live by faith with confidence in the power and goodness of God, who are the true sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, proclaimed the good news of the Savior to Abraham in advance with this promise, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are people of faith, whether Jew or Gentile, are blessed and favored by God and declared free of the guilt of sin and its penalty, and placed in right standing with him, along with Abraham, the believer. And Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. Brothers and sisters, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though a last will and testament is just a human covenant, Yet when it has been signed and made legally binding, no one sets it aside or adds to it, modifying it in some way. Now the promises in the covenants were decreed to Abraham and to his seed. God does not say, and to seeds, descendants, heirs, as if referring to many persons, but as to one and to your seed, who is none other than Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came into existence 430 years later, after the covenant concerning the coming of Messiah, does not and cannot invalidate the covenant previously established by God. For if the inheritance of what was promised is based on observing the law as these false teachers claim, it's no longer based on a promise. However, God granted it to Abraham as a gift by virtue of his promise. Through Abraham's seed, referring not to his many descendants, 
but in particular to one, Jesus, God would bless the entire world. Galatians chapter 3, verse 29 affirms, And if you belong to Christ, if you are in him, then you are Abraham's descendants and spiritual heirs according to God's promise. In other words, all who would be a part of Abraham's seed, which happens by faith in Christ, would find that Abraham's God would be their God as well. Even back then, Galatians chapter 3, verse 6 says that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham was no more saved by works than the thief on the cross was. It's always and only God's saving grace that brings salvation. Abraham fulfilled his end of the covenant promise. His obedience revealed the faith that took hold of the promise of salvation. His works didn't justify him. Instead, the works showed that he was already justified. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 says, that is the essence of the covenant and how it is expressed in the life of faith. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, humanly speaking, has found? Has he obtained a favored standing? For if Abraham was justified, that is, acquitted from the guilt of his sins by works, those things he did that were good, he has something to boast about but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed in, trusted, relied on God, and it was credited to his account as righteousness, right living, right standing with God. Think about the great truth that your hope of salvation comes only from the righteousness of Jesus credited to you by faith. What great hope and joy can you receive from this wonderful provision made for you? Covenant at Sinai. Here's a question for you. How was the covenant made between Israel and God at Mount Sinai? Exodus chapter 24 in the Amplified Bible tells the story. Then God said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's older sons, and seventy of Israel's elders, and you shall worship at a safe distance. 
Moses alone shall approach the Lord, but the others shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. Then Moses came and told the people everything that the Lord had said and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he got up at early in the morning and built an altar for worship at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars, memorial stones representing the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in large basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it aloud to the people, and they said, Everything that the Lord has said we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood, which had been placed in the large basins, and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up the mountainside, and they saw a manifestation of the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire, just as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the Israelites, and they saw the manifestation of the presence of God, and ate and drank. Now the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay there, and I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandments which I have written for their instruction. So Moses arose with Joshua his attendant, and he went up to the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Remember that Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever for a legal matter, let him go to them. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory and brilliance of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, God called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. In the sight of the Israelites, the appearance of the glory and brilliance of the Lord was like consuming fire on the top of the mountain. Moses entered the midst of the cloud and went up the mountain, and he was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. Moses and some leaders went to Mount Sinai. These leaders included Aaron and his two sons, who represented the priests, and the seventy elders and leaders who represented the nation. The men accompanying Moses had to stop from afar, but Moses was allowed to go on up to where God appeared. 
Moses later came and affirmed the covenant with the whole nation. He proclaimed what God had spoken to him, to which the nation answered with the following words, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. Of course, as sacred history has shown, and as our own experience often proves, it's one thing to make the claim to be obedient. It's quite another to reach out in faith and surrender in order to harness the divine power that gives us the grace to do what we say we will. Let's listen to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2. How does this verse explain Israel's failure? How can we learn to avoid the same mistake? For indeed, we have had the good news of salvation preached to us, just as the Israelites also, when the good news of the promised land came to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because it was not united with faith in God by those who heard. Only by faith and by grasping the promises that come by faith can we be obedient, an obedience that is expressed by loyalty to God's law. Obedience to the law was no more contrary to the everlasting covenant in Moses' time than it is in ours. The common misperception about the law and the covenants, which usually arises from reading Paul, stems from a failure to take into account the context in which Paul was writing, that of dealing with his Judaizing opponents. They wanted to make the law and obedience to it central to the faith. Paul, in contrast, wanted to make Christ and his righteousness the central component. How often have you said, All that the Lord has told me I will do, only to fail to follow through? How does this unfortunate reality make the promise of grace so much more precious? What hope would you have without it? The New Covenant, Part 1. Let's listen to Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34 in the English Standard Version. What do these texts mean both in their immediate context and in ours today? Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, 
My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Jeremiah uttered these words amid the greatest crisis the people had yet faced, the coming Babylonian invasion, when the nation was threatened with all but certain extinction. Here again, however, as in other places, the Lord offered them hope, the promise that this was not going to be the ultimate end, and that they would have another chance to thrive in the presence of the Lord. So the first promise of the new covenant found in the Bible is in the context of Israel's eventual return from the Babylonian exile, and the blessing that God would grant to them upon that return. Just as the breaking of the covenant made at Sinai, Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 32, brought them into exile, so the remaking of this covenant would preserve them and their hope for the future. Like the Sinai covenant, the new covenant would be relational, and it would include the same law, the Ten Commandments, but now written not just on tablets of stone, but in their minds and on their hearts, where it should have been all along. The same law that was engraved upon the tables of stone is written by the Holy Spirit upon the tables of the heart. Instead of going about to establish our own righteousness, we accept the righteousness of Christ. His blood atones for our sins. His obedience is accepted for us. Then the heart renewed by the Holy Spirit will bring forth the fruits of the Spirit. Through the grace of Christ, we shall live in obedience to the law of God written upon our hearts. Having the Spirit of Christ, we shall walk even as He walked. That hope-filled quotation is from Ellen G. White's book, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 372. Under the New Covenant, the people's sins would be forgiven. They would know the Lord for themselves, and they would obey God's law through the power of the Holy Spirit working in them. Old covenant in shadows and in symbols, new covenant in reality. Salvation was always by faith, a faith that would reveal the fruits of the Spirit.
The New Covenant, Part 2. The prophecy of Jeremiah about the New Covenant contains a double application. First, it refers to Israel's return to God and his bringing them home. Second, it refers to the work of Jesus, the Messiah, whose death ratified the covenant and would change the relationship between humans and God. It's in the New Testament that we get the fullest expression of the plan of salvation, which before had been revealed only in shadows and types, as Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 in the Amplified Bible shows us. For since the law has only a shadow, just a pale representation of the good things to come, not the very image of those things, it can never, by offering the same sacrifices continually, year after year, make perfect those who approach its altars. Now let's listen to two more New Testament references from the Amplified Bible. The question to answer is, how do these texts link back to Jeremiah's prophecy? Reference number one, Luke chapter 22 and verse 20. And in the same way he, Jesus, took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant ratified in my blood. And reference Number two, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24 through 26. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is, represents my body, which is offered as a sacrifice for you. Do this in affectionate remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant ratified and established in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in affectionate remembrance of me. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are symbolically proclaiming the fact of the Lord's death until he comes again. The broken body of Christ and his shed blood were revealed in the Old Testament in the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. The juice of the vine represents the blood of Jesus shed on the cross, revealed in the New Testament. The work of Jesus did not begin with the New Testament. It embraced the Old as well, and in the communion service today, we can see the link that unites what Jesus has done all through salvation history. The bread and the juice, then, provide the shortest summary of that salvation history. Though they are just symbols, it is still through these symbols that we understand God's incredible work in our behalf. The communion service points not just to Christ's death, but also to his return without which his death would be all but meaningless. After all, what good would Christ's first coming be without the second? When we are resurrected from the grave, 
according to Paul. Here are his words. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a shout of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the blast of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Also, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 18. Now if Christ is preached as raised from the dead, how is it that some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, useless, amounting to nothing. And your faith is also vain, imaginary, unfounded, devoid of value and benefit, not based on truth. We are even discovered to be false witnesses representing God because we testify concerning him that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and powerless, mere delusion. You are still in your sins and under the control and penalty of sin. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Jesus established the link when he said, But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. You can read his promise in Matthew chapter 26, verse 29. No question. Christ's first coming is inseparably tied to his second. The first finds its ultimate fulfillment only in the second. Next time you partake of the communion service, think about Christ's vow not to drink of the fruit of the vine until he does so with us in the kingdom of God. How does that make you feel? What does that say about the closeness that Christ seeks with you? Let's continue exploring. As we've heard, the Bible teaches that the rainbow is a sign of God's covenantal promise never to destroy the earth by water again. Sure, thanks to science, we now know that a rainbow occurs when sunlight is both refracted and reflected 
in drops of water, dispersing the light at various angles. Light enters a raindrop at one point, is reflected off the back of that drop at another, and leaves at another, creating the colors that we see. Poet John Keats feared that science would unweave a rainbow. But even if we could parse, measure, predict, and quantify everything about a rainbow down to the innards of each photon and the underbelly of every quark, what would that prove other than that we understand better the natural laws God used to create the signs of this covenant promise? Science might one day be able to explain everything about how rainbows are made, even to 25 digits to the right of a decimal point. But it can never explain why they are made. We, though, know why. Because God created our world in such a way that when sunlight and mist are in the right relationships to each other, the mist breaks up the light by refracting and reflecting it at different angles that create bands of electromagnetic waves which, when reaching our eyes, imprint the image of rainbows in our minds. And he did it to remind us of his covenant promise that never again would he destroy the earth by water. This explanation of the why science can never explain. Here are a few thoughts to ponder and questions to consider. What are some other pivotal truths revealed by the Bible that science can never teach us? In fact, could you argue that the most important things we know could never be revealed by science? If so, what truths would they be? What does it mean to say that the law is engraved on our hearts? How does this idea show the perpetuity of the law even under the new covenant? What is the role of faith and what is the role of works and how are they real in your Christian experience? ambassadorgroup.org Thank you for exploring with us. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.